Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Who doesn't like TV shows and movies about spies? It's a trope that never fails. So when Chicago writer Stephen Conrad, famous for films like The Weatherman and The Pursuit of Happiness, got an Amazon Prime TV show, he knew the winning formula. The show is called Patriot. This month, the Los Angeles Times called it the best TV show you didn't know existed. WBEZ's Monica Eng recently sat down to talk with Conrad about how he came up with the show about a folk-singing CIA agent, one who travels between Milwaukee, Luxembourg, and Paris in hopes of influencing the Iranian elections. Thanks, Jerome. And thank you, Stephen, for coming and talking to us. Hi, Monica. So the first time I heard about Patriot, you were doing an interview with my old boss, Justin Kaufman. You were super sick, but you came anyway to talk about the show called Patriot. And I thought, oh, well, he's a good sport. He came out even when he had a cold to talk about it. Uh, we should check out this show. And I had no idea what to expect, but it, it seemed like the Coen brothers meets Wes Anderson meets Glee and Homeland. I mean, nothing like I'd ever seen. And it's so hard for people to get their heads around this idea that there's this funny, musical, but also very um, moving show about a guy who's a piping engineer from Milwaukee, who's really a CIA agent, who's supposed to be influencing the Iranian elections. How on earth did you come up with this idea? Well, the show is its hard to characterize, and I'm not sure that that's an asset. It's so much going on, but the reason for it is that there is a great amount of time that we that we take up on a serialized story like this. It's 18 hours of storytelling. So now in hour 18, it's, it just gets increasingly harder to ever really say it's about one thing. Now, I notice even though um, the series starts in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, it's in a bunch of foreign locales. Was it intentional to say we're going to Amsterdam and Luxembourg and Paris and Calais and we're going to have this whole international cast of characters? Yes, and it's that's pretty simple, too. When we thought we would like to take the audience on a trip, that was a, a material decision that we made, Tim, literally to take them around the world. And there are, there are new means in TV. There are resources that allow you to do that. Yeah, like Jeff Bezos' money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, he still doesn't give us enough, but okay. we're happy that we have the chance to make Patriot at all. And But it does create for the American audience a real departure, and you're able to drift into a whole other set of things to feel and look at and sound like the signs are different, the police sirens are different. It's transportative. It, I never it, know which one. <laughs> yeah, well, it takes people away, which is what we're trying to do. Walking into Paris to become so You've, you've also made a point to show the cultural diversity of all the immigrants that go through these different European locales. you got the Japanese puppeteer and Brazilian guys who work at the airport and the Senegalese grocer in Paris and the Luxembourgish detective, of course, and all the Iranians. Right. Well, the show has a lot of integration in that regard. It's a, a show that has a plot that happens all around the globe. And the participants in that plot coalesce in season one, Luxembourg, and season two, it's it's Paris. But the plot has brought people from these far-flung regions to kind of fight it out in this one setting. And Paris has its own really very beautiful diversity now, and we, that's an element of the show. There's a new detective who 
is from an immigrant family and she's uh, great yeah yeah she she's the aa hydera is a remarkable french actor we were really very lucky to get her and so is it that you just wanted to show the diversity of these countries that you wrote so many of these really interesting characters well i mean in? so much of the show is about trying to figure each other out and season one you know the the character mike dorman plays john he's got to figure out this this pretty arcane engineering he doesn't have a clue about it so he spends so much of the show just surveying the area and trying to absorb the world around him and the, his colleagues are doing the same thing with him because he's such a, a square peg in that in that system and then when they're out in the world it's it's a similar thing that they're deducing scrutinizing absorbing and then trying to get along with uh, the people that are different than them but then elemental to the success of this once simple but now very complicated, critical, and dangerous task. And we can write in detail about what what it might feel like to have to figure out how to speak to someone in a way that allows them to really get it. It was hard for us over there, the Americans over there, because you just don't, you don't get it. And they do, and they've got a way of looking at the world that they love, and it's culturally important. It's uh, not unlike Chicago in that regard. Chicago is a cool town that's got, it's unlike any other. Tony Fitzpatrick, who plays Jack Burbass, says about Chicago that it keeps beginning. And I, I think that's beautiful. And I've been here for 30 years, and I think that that's true. And it's certainly true of Paris, too. I don't think I'm giving away too much in saying that even though John is this pipe engineer, but really a CIA agent, he also is a folk singer. And uh, some of the terrible things that his job forces him to do come come oozing out in these coffee house open mics. How did you decide that music was going to be a big part of the show? Well, music has it's always been elemental to to film. Even in the silent era, there was I mean there was just wall to wall music. I knew that this would allow me the chance to try to make those two art forms cooperate. If you're good at music, generally, if the more honest you are, I think, the probably the better. And uh, John's day job doesn't allow for that. So it created a, a conflict already. But I like the art form tremendously, and I like the way it makes people feel. It's it's more immediate than writing. Uh, it's physical, and I thought I thought we could figure out how to how to do both. We got lucky that Mike Dorman can can do both very well. But these aren't just random songs. I mean, you have them move the the story along, and um, they explain some pretty complicated stuff, like his mission and what he feels bad about. And we're going to listen to one of the songs about how John feels about kind of messing up a certain operation with Iranians. In June 2011... United States learned Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad was f***ing around with new centrifuges. Egyptian physicist Mohammed Baba Almashed was hired to produce the catalyzed uranium. I was tested Schumer shed while he was on vacation. Keep Iran from activating short-range nuclear weapons to destroy Israel. I got some really bad intelligence Shot an old male hotel maid 
who was just making the Okay, so you had to get the name Ahmadinejad into <laughs> the lyrics. Was that tough? Well, I wasn't the first one to do that. The first one to do that was Tom Waits. So oh, I okay. stole that from yeah. Tom Waits in a really beautiful song called uh, The Road to Peace. It inspired the character, like the, the way that that song functions, which is there are very few rhymes. It, it feels almost like the performer is reading a news article, but somehow it works as a song. You know, you mentioned Tom Waits, but there is also, it seemed like a big homage to Towns Van Zant. I think, in that Cool Rick song. I startled him and made him sick. I took the cool out of Cool Rick, and now he's dead serious. Rick. If I needed you, would you come to me? Put your head on my chest and help me rest like Charlie. Now that you really know me. So was that an intentional nod? Sure. Well, if I needed you, it's in our pilot. John and his father sing it. His dad's transmitting to him what the promise of that song is. But the shift is... When it is sung at the end of the season, the members of his family now know what hard things he does in his life. They're very dark, and they learn this about him. So when he puzzles over whether they would come to him if he needed them, what he says at the end of Dead Serious Rick, that song, now he says, now that you really know me. And it's a question we answer in season two. Can the people who love him most still love him when they fully know him? And the answer is not always yes. So you also read a plot line and a song that explain, let's say, things like the regulations of getting a gun in France. If you are attacked in your place of business that can demonstrate loss of property and consciousness on the 13th attack, oh man, you get stressed in France. We, well, we made all that up. So many of you who don't know it, what we say in France is you are able to get a gun if you've been a victim of a physical assault 13 times. The way we say you are able to get a gun in France is not true. They keep all the names of all the French gun owners in this kind of cool French town. But do they have a registry of all the gun owners? I don't know. I never thought to, <laughs> I never thought to ask. Well, you have all this piping terminology. That's not real? No, that's all made up, too. <laughs> so as I watched the end of season two, I felt like, okay, I finally get what's going on here. It's, it seems to me like ultimately it's an allegory where CIA agent John Tavner is the embodiment of this nation's collective guilt and malaise over our, our arrogant and flubbed and often destructive foreign policy that requires harming so many people and, and internalizing that guilt. Wrong? Am I just totally reading into this? No, that's pretty great. I, I, I mean, obviously, we don't discuss all that when we're deciding what plot events happen, but John's disassociation from the rewards of that job, he does not gain anything from that job except to... Uh, appease his, his father now and then. He believes that it's critical because his dad tells him that he is, but 
he's not a champion of our policies. He's not a cheerleader for for any of our principles. I think he's I think he's a pretty cool American in that sense that he's the sort of guy his car doesn't have any bumper stickers on it. And those are my favorite sort of people. Uh he he and he's one of them and I think his fascination with music comes from a desire to occupy that part of his brain where if he sat and was otherwise unoccupied and allowed his mind to question what it is he does, he wouldn't like the answer to it. He's a contemplative person, but it, it generally music draws him in and it, it takes him away from you know what hard deductions he might make about what we're doing around the world, whether the cost of all of it is actually worth any of it. You can see it on his face. He walks around with the weight of all that stuff on him. It's why I, I like that character an awful lot. And it's if we care to keep writing it, it's primarily because I love I love that character very much for that reason. He's a he's a weird sort of hero in that sense. And I, I think what you're cheering for in Patriot is you're cheering for him to quit. I think the audience would love nothing better than if he just has a good away. night's sleep. <laughs> yeah. He's got like weariness written all over his face. You just want you want to hug the guy and like put him in bed with some soup. Even though Patriot is a very serious in many ways series, there there are a lot of really wonderful moments of of levity. Yes. That's a thing that our cast is very good at. And I, I knew when it was coming together that each of them had that talent and they could surprise an audience by being able to demonstrate. Like It's a kind of uh, an acrobatic thing they're able to do to go so quickly from from drama into making you laugh. But they're all exceptional. I, my brother, I have to mention because he's my brother, he's on our new show uh, too. And he's, he's such a, a an important member of our group. He is so full of good cheer and he's a tremendously talented person. He's his own man. He's and he's funny. a sought after actor who doesn't have an agent. He doesn't want that part of the business to get into the art form. He's such an artist and he's so cool. So I'll, I'll mention him. So speaking of this show your brother's on, it's called Perpetual Grace Limited. It's going to be debuting on June 2nd. Tell me about that. We took the cast from Patriot, and then somehow we added Sir Ben Kingsley and Jackie Weaver and Louis Do you guys Guzman. call him Sir on the set? I, he's just the man. I mean, he's just like nobody else. And if you had to do a plot synopsis? Jimmy Simpson, in order to solve some personal problems, decides to take the life earnings of Ben Kingsley and Jackie Weaver. He thinks they're a, like a normal couple. They have a small church, and he does this and then discovers that Ben's character is a serial and violent criminal who's just been hiding in this place, hiding under this identity, and using it to, in slightly depraved ways, take everything from everybody. So he picked the, he picked the wrong guy, as he discovers all right. Well, Stephen Conrad, writer for the big and small screen, but most importantly, writer and director of Patriot, not The Patriot with Mel Gibson, just Patriot now streaming on Amazon, and the upcoming Perpetual Grace Limited on Epics coming June 2nd. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming in. And everybody, watch these shows, please. Oh, thank you, Monica, very much. Laying in our clearing, we're limb by limb. You 
built me in one morning in the leaves around your skin. I hear rain fall on the pond. That was WBEZ's Monica Eng talking with writer Stephen Conrad about the Amazon show Patriot and his upcoming show on Epic's Perpetual Grace Limited. Coming up after the break, we'll hear about how repression against filmmakers from Iran often backfires. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Afternoon's break. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Since the Islamic Revolution in 1979, Iranian filmmakers have had to work under strict government censorship. But not all of them are okay with it. Since 2010, Jafar Panahi's movies criticizing the Islamic Republic have been banned in Iran, and he's been arrested multiple times. He hasn't stopped making movies, though, and WBEZ film contributor Milos Stalik chats with Iranian film professor Jamshid Akrami about Panahi's latest work, Three Faces, it's showing at the Gene Siskel Film Center. Obviously, the one thing which forced Iranian cinema in certain directions, which Panahi has often spoken about, uh, has to do with censorship, which was Iran, after the revolution, embraced film, but under certain conditions. Yes, well, censorship has always been a problem in uh, Iranian cinema. Under the Shah, we had a kind of censorship that I would just simply refer to as, uh, you know, regular or uh, ordinary censorship, the kind of censorship that you would have in any authoritarian regime. Mainly, you know, uh, filmmakers are not allowed to be critical of the establishment. But unfortunately, after the revolution, not only they maintained those, let's call them political, social, uh, political censorship codes, but they also added uh, religious codes because this new regime was a theocratic uh, regime and uh, uh, religion all of a sudden played an important role in uh, Iranian movies. It uh, basically influenced all aspects of Iranian life and culture, but especially uh, the filmmakers. The filmmakers are really having a difficult time uh, dealing with uh, censorship codes. So because of those codes, uh, women's hair, for example, has to be covered regardless of the scene they're in. So if there's even a scene featuring a woman having dinner in the privacy of her house with the immediate members of her family, her hair should still be covered, which is not realistic at all. And therefore, it's unfortunate that you can see, you can say this about uh, every Iranian movie that they reflect a somewhat tarnished image of Iranian realities. Because obviously, when you show uh, a woman with covered hair in uh, private interior scenes, that's a fabricated image. And that's a fabrication that has afflicted every single Iranian movie in the past uh, 40 years, unfortunately. Or lack of, you know, the most innocent kind of uh, physical contact, you know. A father in in an Iranian movie could not even hold hands with uh, his daughter. Or a mother wouldn't be able to hug an actor who plays uh, her son in the movie. So that creates a lot of uh, restrictions. And that's why I think it makes the... Uh, Iranian censorship quite unique in in film history, unfortunately. 
And uh, a great deal of uh, filmmakers' energies is spent just, you know, figuring out how to get around the censorship codes. I remember uh, uh, an Iranian set designer who was in the same screening of a film that that I was uh, uh, in, a very mediocre film, as I remember, is all I remember about it. But she was very, very excited, and I couldn't figure out why. And then she said to me, because they go into the bedroom, and even though they're husband and wife, there's a single bed. <laughs> so for yeah, that. There was a big revolution, right? Because that would be considered a big revolution <laughs> because uh, bedroom scenes wouldn't weren't allowed for uh, a long time, and uh, if there was a bedroom scene, uh, there were separate beds. We're speaking with film critic, historian, film professor Jamshi Akrami, who teaches at William Patterson University in New Jersey, speaking about Jafar Panahi on the occasion of his new film, Three Faces. Kana has considerable political problems, which were always there, always problems with censorship, getting script approval for his films, having the films being banned inside Iran. This is kind of the legacy that accompanied his filmmaking career. But then you really encountered him uh, on the occasion of American censorship when when, uh, the U.S. immigration didn't want to let him into the country. Yes, that was uh, an unfortunate incident that uh, resulted in uh, Mr. Panahi being uh, incarcerated overnight. At uh, well, they they shackled they shackled him right at the airport. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they shackled him, and that's how they uh, took him uh, the following day to the airport, so he could uh, fly back to Hong Kong where his uh, uh, travel had uh, originated from. That was during the time where uh, the Iranians had to be uh, fingerprinted before uh, arriving in this country. And uh, Mr. Panahi uh, defied that ruling. Uh, He said uh, to the customs officials that he was a filmmaker. He hadn't done anything wrong. And uh, he wasn't going to allow them to discriminate against him by fingerprinting him just because he was coming from uh, Iran or a Muslim country. So, uh, and he decided, you know, not to get fingerprinted and therefore he was deported back. And then, of course, his real problems began in 2010, is it? Yes. When, when, when he was arrested along with others ostensibly for making a documentary about the Green Revolution. Yes, he was uh, with uh, a film crew and members of uh, his family in his own apartment in Tehran, making a movie about the aftermath of the Green Movement in Iran, where uh, his house was raided by uh, secret police, and uh, they arrested everybody in the apartment, and they confiscated uh, uh, the camera and the footage that uh, they had produced. And then he was... uh, uh, incarcerated for uh, close to uh, three months, and and then subsequent in uh, uh, in view of that, he was banned from further filmmaking, from traveling, uh, from giving interviews. All of these other conditions and punishments followed. Yeah, that was a draconian uh, punishment. You know, completely unjustifiable. Didn't make any sense. Which is why uh, Panahi decided to uh, defy that. You know, he didn't pay any attention to uh, his restrictions and uh, immediately started to uh, plan to uh, make a film. He knew that he couldn't take his camera outside, which was very unfortunate because uh, he had 
this reputation as a sort of a street filmmaker, somebody who sets his stories mostly in uh, exterior spaces. But because of this uh, sentence, uh, he couldn't do that. He would have been uh, uh, stopped from uh, shooting anything in uh, open spaces. But he decided to use his apartment basically as the main setting for uh, This Is Not A Film. And uh, he followed that movie with one uh, called Close Curtain, which was also in a confined space in uh, a beach house. And the third one was a Taxi, again, mostly shot in a confined space of uh, a taxi cab. And it was only, uh, you know, in his uh, fourth movie after the band, in uh, Three Faces, that he found this uh, opportunity to go back to uh, open spaces and uh, shoot the film uh, in a village setting. Well, and Three Faces, which takes place in a small village where... Panahi himself, who is also his character in all of his films, the, in all of this new non-film films that he's been making, of which there are now four, first of all, they're interesting in of themselves because there's a, a new aesthetic that I feel that he really broke through and developed to make these films. But besides that, it also deals with this girl who's going to commit suicide, which is also something that you can't really show in, uh, according to the uh, Islamic code. Yeah, so those are all uh, different ways in which he's uh, defying the unjust uh, government ruling. He uh, appears in his movies because the government tried to basically make him uh, invisible. Not only not active, but also invisible, not allow him to go to festivals and to travel abroad as he used to before the ban. So now he's still... uh, unable to travel abroad, but uh, he travels through his movies. So maybe uh, he was, this is how he was tricking the government, basically, by uh, making himself the central character of uh, his movies. Of course, he he does have a stronger uh, justification. You know, in the first movie, the entire movie is about him. So it makes sense that he's in the center of that movie. The second film is also a sort of personal diary, you know, he appears as himself in the movie. And you can say the same thing about the third movie. Uh, Which is a taxi driver. Uh, he, yeah, he's <laughs> uh, a driver. But some people, uh, some of the passengers recognize him and then he has to confess, yes, I'm Jafar Panahi. So in a sense, these, uh, at least these three movies uh, that he made after the band, can be really considered uh, personal diaries, you know, from aesthetic point of view. So that makes sense that uh, he's in them. But also, you know, I don't think the government is uh, too happy about the kind of visibility that uh, Panahi is giving himself by appearing in his movies. Well, and in, in, in the new film, Three Faces, I would say that what's different about it is that it is a more um, cinematically ambitious films because you see a lot more camera moves, for example, which are more complex and obviously took a much more people equipment to set up. So in, in, on, the, on this minimalist scale of making films, it is larger. It concerns the same kinds of issues because it's really about a girl and her freedom to pursue the dream that she really wants, which is to go to Tehran and to go to school and to be in to be an actress against a very conservative family. So it really brings the tension 
again between traditional Iran and modern Iran into in, into relief. But an Iranian film distributor said to me, don't kid yourself that the government doesn't know that everything that Panahi is doing, so that they are really watching this with an eye half closed or half open. Oh, definitely. They're, they're aware of it. And uh, if people are wondering how come, you know, they allow him to uh, still make movies, I think uh, it's a question of uh, damage assessment on the part of the government. Uh, maybe the authorities would rather turn a blind eye to uh, uh, Mr. Panahi's filmmaking than and the way he's uh, violating the ban, then, you know, uh, throwing him in jail again and cause another uh, international uproar as they did by the first time when they uh, incarcerated him. But also, you know, it's interesting you mentioned the movies about uh, a girl who's interested in uh, following her interest uh, acting. Mm -hmm. In a sense, uh, that should be the kind of character that Mr. Panahi can identify with right. because he's been banned right. by the government from pursuing his interest, which, which is filmmaking. But he's still doing that. And while he's doing that, he still manages to uh, uh, break some taboos. As you mentioned, you know, there's a scene of uh, suicide, you know, the girl yeah. who commits suicide. And that's uh, sort of uh, shot and uh, shown in a sort of shocking manner. Right. So he's defying that element. He's also, you throughout the movie, you see at some point when uh, a woman loses her hijab, you know, the the headscarf is uh, thrown away. Right. So, uh, and there's a little bit of physical contact when necessary uh, between the characters. So in a sense, you know, Panahi has managed to work free of the uh, government's interference through those uh, censorship codes. Because in Iran, as a filmmaker, you have to get approval for your script, you have to get approval for your cast and crew, and you have to apply for a screening permit. Mr. Panahi now doesn't have to do any of that. <laughs> I mean, this is almost a dream of uh, any filmmaker who works uh, in an authoritarian regime. He he can work uh, freely, although, you know, he has to work secretly, surrep surreptitiously. But within the confines of that, he's still free to do uh, whatever he wants. Well, and to his credit, what I, I read a quote by him in which he said that he was, he and other filmmakers who had high visibility, like he does, obviously, that if anything happens to him, he's arrested again, they try to take some reprisal against him, that the international community will come to his aid, whereas the danger for him and the, the, the need that he feels to also be able to stand up is big for young filmmakers, first-time filmmakers, who are easily intimidated, who don't have the clout or the international connections to be able to resist that kind of pressure that's put upon them. So in a way, he makes it into a broader issue. Yes, a, an issue of restriction and censorship and lack of uh, uh, individual freedom, freedom of expression, all of those issues. Uh, he was telling me, you know, last time we were uh, talking on the phone that he feels so sorry for so many uh, political activists in Iran that are in prison right now. But unfortunately, there is no support for them right. because they are not known outside of the country. So if the international community doesn't know 
a political activist, there isn't much they could do in terms of supporting them. You're listening to Worldview. I'm Milo Stalik. I've been speaking with filmmaker, film professor, film scholar, Jamshid Akrami, who teaches at William Patterson University and whose four films, one short and three feature length, include documentaries about the Iranian cinema both before and after the revolution. The films are Friendly Persuasion, A Walk with Kiarostami, The Lost Cinema, and Cinema of Discontent, which is about film censorship in Iran. And this is on the occasion of the screening of Jafar Panahi's film, Three Faces. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Milos Stalik is Worldview's film contributor. Coming up after the break, we'll hear some child-oriented suggestions for a global weekend in Chicago. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. Nari Safavi is here. Nari has recommendations for you. And nice to see you, my global citizen friend. Good day, Jerome. It's great to be here again. Uh, Nari, tell us, uh, we've got a theme, basically, to Weekend Passport this week. There's a lot of creativity and experiences of youth globally going on, and our main segment is going to be about stories that are inspired by tales from youth in West Africa. But before that, I want to mention that the Cine Youth Festival is going on. It's part of the programming of the Chicago International Film Festival, and they focus on young filmmakers from around the world. And there were a lot of really great short films that are going to be there this weekend, starting tonight and going all the way until Sunday. And the international section of the program will happen mostly on Sunday. And Sunday, April 28th, beginning at 11 a.m. at the Music Box Theater, which is a great venue to take the young people there and have them get inspired by the creativity of the young people from other parts of the world. All right. So, so uh, basically a international film festival for kids, the Cine Youth Festival at the Music Box on Sunday, beginning at 11 a.m. That sounds great. Yes. And I want to also mention something that I haven't seen, but it sounds really interesting. Spring play by Ekjit and Nice Indian Boy. It's happening tomorrow at 7 p.m. at the Cutting Hall Performance Center, 150 East Wood Street in Palatine. Uh, so that's out there in the western suburbs. I've never been there, but it just seems like the global ins- globally inspired programming is going all over the Chicagoland. So. All right, let's move on to our main feature, and our main feature is called Fast Food Chain. Fast food chain, and it's a regular run. starts uh, tomorrow night, Saturday, April 27th, to May 18th at 4 p.m., uh, and uh, Thursday, May 2nd at 7 p.m., Adventure Stage, 1012 Noble Street, Chicago. Daryl Brooks is here. He directs Fast Food Chain. Great to meet you, Daryl. Nice to meet you. And also here is Tom Arvidis, and he is the Adventure Stage Chicago Producing Artistic Director. Tell me something about Adventure Stage Chicago. I don't know anything about it. Oh, great. Well, it's great to be with you. Uh, We've been around for 15 years. Uh, We are uh, based out of the Northwestern Settlement House, which has been 
at that location since 1891. Uh, and we, um, we tell stories for and about young people, heroic stories for and about young people at Adventure Stage. We create work that we want to be immediately relevant to the community that we serve. And all of the shows of this year's season are dedicated to the theme of hunger. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. So in addition to this in a fast food chain, there's a bunch of others? Yeah. So we do themed work with, uh, with a social mission, uh, right? So as part of the Settlement House, which uh, has over a century of service to uh, the Westtown community in greater Chicago, uh, we are telling stories where young people are making a difference in their communities uh, around socially relevant themes. All right. I want to know about uh, Fast Food Chain and how it got started. It seems like a unique genesis, as Nari was telling us. Daryl, what, what was going on there? Oh, as far as um, it getting started or as far as the show? A bunch of kids wrote it, I heard. Well, some kids helped um, our playwright um, write it. Um, Andrew Marikas um, um, and Tom actually went into some schools and um, got the input to help, um, to help generate um, um, what the show is. Um, and so they went into schools that I think um, are kind of their families are suffering through some of the content that are in um, fast food chain, um, which leads to like almost food deserts, as we're talking about. I mean, we have them like we have places in the city of Chicago where it's hard to get good food. Um, I mean, I'm a North Sider, so I mean, um, it's not hard for me to go to a grocery store and it's up the corner or a Whole Foods or or something and and and, and be able to get some food. Um, but in there are many places in the city of Chicago where they only have a corner store that might have some bananas on the on the shelf or you know only have like flaming hot cheetos or or something like that and so that is part of the basis and so they went into those communities um and got some of their stories and that's kind of kind of how it all blends together and we shared uh we shared some of those west african folk tales as well as a as a starting point to have some conversations that are not not frankly easy conversations to have, but um, but the stories were a way of bringing the room together and and kind of uh, you know creating that 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 safe space where those stories could be shared. Tom, can you tell us, give us a little flavor of what those West African tales, Yoruba and Igbo and uh, and other ones um, might be like? Well, uh, we're all probably familiar with the tortoise and the hare, and uh, most of us probably immediately think of the race, but it turns out there's a whole tradition of stories uh, with those characters and a few others uh, mm-hmm. that also revolve around the theme of hunger. And, uh, and so what Andrew did was he really looked at those, as a, again, as a starting point for, for his journey as the playwright, and um, and so we have the character of hare and the character of tortoise, the character of rat, uh, and the character of lion as kind of uh, characters that that you you meet in the play. Uh, in the the play itself is a combination of a telling of the original folk tales, but also a telling of this family, a story of this family in Chicago. And I think the play does a really interesting job of finding. Uh, uh, allegorical connections and um, and and where the two two worlds kind of intersect, and at some point in the play, they they really it becomes kind of unclear which world we're in, and um, and so as I say, those animal characters 
Uh, also, it's like we can see them in the real world. So it's it's a really creative uh, and imaginative world that the playwrights created. And we're excited. Uh, as I said earlier, Adventure Stage really focuses on young people with the work that we do. So this is work that will get shared with uh, students from all over the city. We'll come and see this, uh, Chicago Public School students, uh, and then we'll share it with families uh, on evenings and weekends. And what do the young people usually typically react? How do they react to your plays? I know that you haven't really done yeah. this one yet, but to the other ones, are, yeah. is there a discussion afterwards? Absolutely. Do you engage them? Yeah. Absolutely. So we we frame every experience with, with a question we want uh, the young people to, to have on their mind when they're watching. And then at the end of every performance, we, we do. We have a, a, what we call a curtain conversation. And, mm-hmm. uh, and we'll ask them questions and we'll ask them what questions they have for us and the actors join us and we spend 15 minutes at least um having having a conversation and and it's it's a remarkable i think experience for so many young people who are having their first experience with live theater so we Mm -hmm. we really take that responsibility very seriously and we want them to know that you know storytelling uh, is a way to spark conversation and to 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 get to um, you know some of the, some of the, the 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 questions about the world that we live in uh, you know and and we want our space to be a place where where those questions can happen. We're talking with Tom Arvides. He's the Adventure Stage Chicago producing artistic director, and Daryl Brooks is here too. He is the director of Fast Food Chain. Um, it sounds like this melding that goes on between um, the folklore and the real. How do you do that? <laughs> it's you know it's it's it, it. How do I put this? Um, um, they they intertwine through a character called Embe. Um, Embe means tortoise in um, Nigerian, and she is kind of she is kind of the storyteller. Um, uh, the storyteller of the the tribes and how they connect. So that's kind of how they intertwine. And she's she's kind of guiding us through um, the folklore, and we're kind of adding the the real the realness of the city of Chicago and in that story of the family, kind of just adjust to what she's telling. How do you treat the material that the young people brought to you? Is it seems like that's kind of a precious thing. If they're putting their input into the story, how do you do that? You're absolutely right. I mean, uh, when we go into a classroom, we tell them they are the experts. I mean, they're in that space. It's true. No, they're the experts of what it means to be a young person in the living right now in the city of Chicago. So we we really hold what they they give us uh, in high regard, and we we try and you know handle it with care. Um, ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, the play is is the work of the imagination of the playwright. But I think the kids who were involved in that process, if they were to come and see the play, they would recognize uh, how they contributed. Um, it's not always something somebody says specifically that the playwright is is bringing in, but it certainly is... Uh, the playwright's job to sort of figure out what are the the ideas that that have the most currency w- with young people where where you know what are the the ideas that that get them the most excited and um, and those are the things that he uh, in this case really uh, paid attention to and was infusing into the play and it seems like uh 
this sort of a play is kind of designed for having to have a takeaway of empathy. Oh, absolutely. With people. And uh, do you get that? Do the kids actually absolutely uh, say absolutely. that to you? I mean, at, at the end, it's. I mean, it, the show really hits that home. I mean, uh-huh. it really hits home a, a sense of empathy and, and the ability to help others in the best way that you can. You know, I mean, not all of us have a bunch of money that we can help people with, but the knowing that there's something that we all can do mm-hmm. right. to, to help, I mean, that really hits it home. And I think that's definitely a message that all kids should definitely see in this show really drives it home. What's the Chicago storyline like in, in the play? Um, it's, I mean, it, as, as I was saying before, it's really based on the food deserts of Chicago. I mean, that is literally what it is, except for, um, I mean, every, it's, it, it actually could probably be pa- placed in, in every city in, in the country right now. Um, but there's certain things about Chicago that we talk about. We talk about, you know, deep dish pizza. We talk about, you know, Takis and and different things that are that you know that are Chicago specific, um, and I think that is because um, it. I mean, it's a Chicago-based playwright, um, but it is kind of universal. I mean, to you know, to be honest, it's kind of a universal story um, that everybody can enjoy. It's a little bit about gentrification. Yeah, uh, there's a store. The there's a the sort of a subplot about a a. Um, a, a, a big box grocer who wants to come in and buy up some land and put in a store, uh, but it's going to displace the corner store and it's going to, um, but there's a question as to whether even the neighborhood can afford to shop there. And so, um, so the, the young person at the center of the story, Rudy, uh, whose nickname is hair, um, he has an idea about how he can uh, how he can help solve this problem. He also has ambitions to be a celebrity chef. So uh, the story—I don't want to give too much away. Too late. But the story <laughs> is uh, the story is really about who doesn't want to be a celebrity <laughs> chef? Right. Exactly. Exactly. So I mean, there's there's a lot of laughs. There's fun. Um, there are some serious things. I should say at Adventure Stage, we really focus on middle school uh, with our audiences and, and of course, the, the family you know, and caregivers of, of middle schoolers. Um, but we, we love this audience because they are at a point where they have one foot firmly planted in imagination, uh, but they also are at a point where they are becoming more and more aware of the complexities of the world and uh, and we're looking at the stories that we tell in this story in particular um as a as a way to kind of uh, nurture in young people that idea that they can make a difference uh even as they are growing into a world that is is a lot more challenging i bet it's fun working with uh young people's theater yeah absolutely there's no better audience, I got to tell you, um, because they are so honest. You were asking yeah. Nari earlier, you know, what sort of response they give us. I, you know, they are the the most uh, just the, the the most honest audience, and and so uh, when they do. Uh, gasp or when they do laugh, uh, and sometimes they they. You know, they they get uh, they're moved, right? They get up, upset. I don't mean in a negative way, but they're moved. Um, you know that that's always uh, as an artist myself, and uh, you know Daryl probably would agree. You know that that means we're doing our job, and we feel really really great about that. And and also they tell us 
when they're bored, you know, which also yeah. is a is a great uh, yeah. you know uh, help to us to know you know how to do our job. But um, but yeah, they're 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 the best audience. They're, they haven't learned how to be polite, right? right. And and that's um, I really appreciate that. Do you get them. a lot of kids who are seeing a live performance for the first time? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't. I I I would be guessing if I gave you a percentage, but mm-hmm. you know, I, I think because we serve predominantly Chicago public schools with our shows, um, I, I, I would say, you know, 50% of, of the kids that come and see any given show are, are having their first experience with live theater. That's why diversity in that is so important. It it's is, so yeah. important, yeah. yeah. I mean, just like we have food deserts, we also have a lot of young people who are whose cultural experience is almost entirely electronically mm-hmm. mediated. That's right. Yeah. They have never seen anything live. Mm-hmm. Even their own schools, they don't have the budgets to do those kinds of things. So yeah. to come to these performances can be very can be transformative for them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I hope a lot of people go and see Fast Food Chain. It is at Adventure Stage Chicago, and it starts uh, tomorrow on April 27th and runs till May 18th. There is a show at 7 p.m. at uh, Thursday, May 2nd. You guys do a lot of afternoon shows. You, you're not, like, keeping the kids up late. No, that's right. Um, <laughs> Saturday afternoons, a uh, few Friday evenings, uh, but, as I say, mostly uh, weekday matinees for, for students. Well, thanks very much for joining us. Great to hear about what's happening with uh, theater and young people. Tom Arvides is the uh, Venture Stage Chicago's producing artistic director, and Daryl Brooks directs Fast Food Chain. Thanks a lot for joining us. Great seeing you, Nari Safavi. Thanks for another fine edition of Weekend Passport. It was a privilege to be here. Thank you. Did you know that you can listen to Worldview whenever and wherever you want? In fact, you can listen to episodes from the last 25 years of Worldview if you visit wbez.org slash worldview. Not only do we post daily episodes, but every Thursday we'll bring you our favorite show from the archive. Monday on Worldview, we'll be participating in a statewide initiative from Illinois Public Radio about the state of pot, cannabis, and legalization. Hope you can join us. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Jenny Friedland and Ashish Valentine for production assistance. And thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jarrell McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Worldview.